who the, who the future people are uh, will depend upon uh, what we do now. Um, so they can't really be included as equal participants uh, in any um, uh, imagined, let alone actual, um, contract, uh, which is why I think we should not be bound by this uh, contractualist thinking. And we should actually just say that, well, whoever uh, they turn out to be, uh, we have absolute responsibilities towards them uh, of care and, in fact, I, I've argued, of, uh, of love. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. One quick bit of updates for you before we get into today's show is that the podcast is now available on iTunes. Really cool. Kind of almost makes it feel official. So the links to that, as well as our social media, Facebook, Twitter, are all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So please check that out. You can subscribe and never miss an episode. Today's guest will be Wittgenstein scholar, Green Party politician, and chair of the environmental think tank Greenhouse, Rupert Reed. Dr. Reed uh, studied philosophy, politics, economics at Oxford and did his postgrad in the US at Princeton and Rutgers. He's currently back in the UK in the University of East Anglia. Dr. Reed specializes in Wittgenstein in the philosophy of language and the philosophy of science. He's also a strong environmental campaigner and has been the candidate for um, the Green Party in the UK in a number of elections. In our conversation, Dr. Reed offered a really fierce criticism of contemporary contract liberalism as too individualistic, too static, to be able to, to meet the challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century. We discussed whether or not there are other older forms of liberalism that might be more able to confront these challenges. I mentioned the example of John Stuart Mill. And we closed with Dr. Reed offering a vision fundamentally outside of the liberal way of thinking for how he thinks we should think about ourselves and our society going forward. So, without further preamble, it's my pleasure to present Dr. Rupert Reed. I am here today with Dr. Rupert Reed. Dr. Reed, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So my goal here is I want to just cover a paper you wrote called Wittgenstein versus Rawls, who these two guys are, and get into get into some political philosophy essentially. So the goal here is to tackle some of the big ideas in modern political philosophy in a way that's in-depth but still accessible. And I think we're going to do it today from a, a dissenting point of view and offer you something a little bit different than the sort of classic, what you might call institutional liberalism that you generally will encounter when you do your first year 
Introduction to Political Philosophy course. Before we get into any of that, though, what, how, I know you've done a few things. You've written on Wittgenstein, you've written on liberalism, you're also a passionate environmentalist. How do you, how, how, how do you answer the question, what, what do you do when asked? Yeah, so as you say, uh, Wittgenstein is my main man, but in recent years I've been increasingly moving into political philosophy and ecological philosophy. Uh, and I also run a, a think tank called uh, Greenhouse, which attempts to bring a kind of broadly green perspective to thinking about the great issues of our time. Fantastic. So let's just jump right in. Who, I think people have heard the name Wittgenstein. Who, who was he and why was he important in the history of political thought? So many of us think that Wittgenstein was the most important philosopher, at least of the 20th century. He was a philosopher who thought a lot about the nature of language, the nature of our concepts and the nature of philosophy. He didn't write much about uh, politics as such, but there have been a number of attempts now to apply his thinking uh, in that area. Uh, some people think that uh, Rawls is a, a Wittgensteinian philosopher. Uh, I beg to differ, and that's where the paper that you're referring to really comes in. Yeah, and I'll, I'll link to that in the description so people can can uh, read it on their own. I guess a d another way of putting the conversation we're about to have is if you could bring Wittgenstein back and subject him to an introduction to political philosophy class, what, what would he make of it? And your answer seems to be is that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be that impressed. Well, I th yeah, I think he would hate the, uh, hate the class for certain. <laughs> um, but I think that maybe one of the reasons why he would uh, hate it is because he would be pretty dissatisfied, I reckon, with the kind of ideas that tend to dominate such classes. Basically, in our society, liberal political philosophy is hegemonic. It is the ruling idea in the university, and it's the ruling idea in the land, uh, in its connection with, uh, with individualism and with neoliberalism. Now, some listeners who know something about this will say, no, 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 uh, Rawls is an egalitarian, liberal political philosophers are left-leaning philosophers, but for me, they have an awful lot in common with the uh, ideological supposed opponents on their right of the political spectrum, because basically they all traced back the fundamental unit of politics to the individual rather than to the society. They think of society, and perhaps we'll come back to this later, as a kind of gigantic contract between individuals rather than really thinking about the society or the community as coming first as pre-existing uh, individuals and as also existing through and through uh, across time and as existing through and through in a place. Uh, being embedded uh, in ecosystems. Uh, so for me, uh, liberal political philosophy doesn't succeed in thinking across time, doesn't succeed in thinking space, doesn't succeed in thinking us in our animal uh, nature, and certainly doesn't succeed in thinking of us as through and through communitarian animals. Yeah, so you've put a lot out there, and I think almost like the rest of the interview will be just dissecting some of that. Yeah. Um, to those of the, our audience who aren't familiar, 
Um, let me put it this way. When you do your introduction to political philosophy class, the first thing you will study is a book called Theory of Justice and maybe Political Liberalism by a guy called John Rawls. And whereas you, you'll probably have heard the name Wittgenstein, you would definitely have heard the names of like um, uh, big 18th century political theorists like Karl Marx or whatever. If you haven't done this course, you probably haven't heard the name John Rawls, at least in my experience, but he's the first book on the list. So I guess to start with, who who is he and why is he the first book on the list before we jump into some of the meatier stuff? Yeah, so Rawls is the doyen of uh, contemporary liberal uh, political philosophy, uh, the the most influential uh, voice um, in it. Uh, and his influence actually has gone well beyond the academy, even though, as you say, uh, he's not widely known uh, in the outside world. For example, uh, Obama cited him quite uh, prominently. Now, for those listeners who think Obama was uh, the best thing since sliced bread, they may be thinking, oh, so much the better for John Rawls. For me, uh, Obama was a relatively uh, middle-of-the-road figure who didn't, in the final analysis, uh, take um, uh, issues of, uh, of climate and our future and so on and so forth uh, nearly seriously enough. He absolutely tried, but he's a very mainstream figure compared to where we actually need to be uh, at this point in history. And that's what I'm interested in, where we need to be relative to where a figure like John Rawls uh, leaves us. So Rawls is the heir to people such as Hobbes, uh, Locke uh, and Rousseau in the liberal uh, political philosophical tradition or, or also the social contract uh, tradition. And basically uh, what Rawls thought is that you should um, start off um, thinking of your thinking from uh, a position of yourself but abstracted from all your particular qualities so that you become a sort of isolated uh, essence or um, ego, and then imagine what kind of society would be a just society uh, uh, based uh, upon that um, uh, thought experimental uh, exercise. Uh, my view is that this, this thought experimental exercise is extremely dangerous uh, in stripping us out from our uh, animality, our ecological placidness, our fundamental embeddedness, always through and through that we're born into in uh, in community uh, and that basically what this method does is reassert the primacy of uh, of the individual and and that's the sense in which uh, it is a, a, a liberal uh, theory that places the value of uh, of freedom and liberty absolutely uh, number one uh, and everything else um, is subsidiary to that and I think at this point in history that is an absolutely catastrophic basis on which to uh, think uh, society I think it probably made quite good sense a few centuries ago when our real problem was uh, was perhaps um, uh, violent uh, religious disagreement um, but although there is such violent disagreement in the world today to think that that's our main problem uh, is to be caught up in in extremely um, short-termist uh, thinking uh, our main problem is that we uh, don't think long term we don't think like a society uh, and we don't think uh, uh, like an ecology like an ecosystem uh, and in relation to those kinds of problems I think that uh, rules it gives us a fundamentally wrong starting point let's actually jump ahead to contract theory then now with regards to the the contract theory device this has i mean maybe you can offer a better summary than i but this has been around since rousseau locke hobbes and it's essentially the idea is you can construct a social order by saying what would people agree to to form a state to get out of a 
free state yeah. society. What, yeah. And what he does is essentially take it to another level of abstractness. He says, instead of real people, we're talking hypothetical people who don't know anything about the society in which they're going to create. But he actually sort of smuggles the conclusion in at the start, or at least I've always thought by he gives... He says the people making this contract, we will give them access to what he calls the thin theory of the good. Um, maybe mm. you could cash that out a little. And is he, in giving them the thin theory of the good, is he essentially asserting what he's been asked to prove? Yeah, so uh, I'll get to that in one sec. Let me just take a, a little step further back to the other people who you uh, uh, mentioned. Hmm. So I think it's worth mentioning, for example, uh, I mentioned uh, Hobbes's name a while ago. Hmm. Uh, liberal political philosophers don't like to talk about Hobbes, but it seems to me that he is the grandfather of, uh, of liberalism because he's the one who starts out this entire social contract uh, mode of thinking. He thinks of individuals as fundamentally separate uh, from each other uh, and in that way... Um, uh, having a, a terrible life and they can be uh, brought to have a better life if they're brought together and subjected to uh, a state. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as we mentioned, there is uh, Rousseau, uh, who, for example, in the opening of the uh, uh, discourse on uh, inequality, says, oh, when uh, human beings are in their ideal paradisical state, they're alone. Uh, they wander around by themselves. They occasionally meet to procreate. It's these kinds of imaginings that stand for me uh, at the basis of, uh, of liberalism and, and fundamentally infect it. And Rawls doesn't escape from this kind of uh, infection. There's, there's also, sorry to jump in, there's also just listening to you talk another line you could draw from Hobbes to sort of modern contract liberalism, which is the sort of over-rationalism of Hobbes. I think Hobbes, oh, yes. Hobbes in his head thought he was a scientist, right? Which is that an, an idea that's occurred to a number of um, moral and political philosophers, rather than sort of, you're talking about living creatures, right? You're talking about human beings, you're talking about emotions, and, and like how we, a lot of this is about how we feel about stuff. Whereas Hobbes, Hobbes yeah. had a very, I mean, he thought he was basically doing algebra, I think, in his work. Rawls isn't quite that, but there is an overt, let's just work it out in the most rational way. This is the logical conclusion. Bish, bash, bosh, you're done, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So uh, liberal political philosophers don't really take seriously that we are embodied creatures. They don't take seriously that we're emotional creatures. I think they don't take seriously that we are mammals, that we are primates, that um, our caring for our children and for future generations is at the absolute heart of who or what we are. I think of liberal political philosophy as political philosophy for reptiles, but thankfully we are not reptiles. We don't eat our own young if we uh, come across them. Um, Wittgenstein emphasized uh, these aspects of our life and emphasized that um, we have what he called forms of life, uh, which are fundamental and non-negotiable and go far beyond the things that philosophers typically restrict themselves to, namely, as you mentioned, the uh, rational character. It seems to me that too many philosophers have thought of us as fundamentally rational beings, primarily because, of course, that's what philosophers like to think of themselves as being. Uh, it's not surprising that for a philosopher, being uh, rational, being um, intellectual uh, is the most important thing, because that's the thing that philosophers are good at, or that they put at the heart of their lives. So what we need is philosophers such as Wittgenstein, and there are others too, of course, such as uh, Nietzsche or Merleau-Ponty, who think beyond that and take seriously the full panoply of our human and uh, 
animal nature. So going on from that to rules, you mentioned the, uh, the, the idea of the, of the good. But turning to this question of the right and the good, because as you've implied, it is absolutely uh, central. Rawls, unlike um, classical liberals, uh, tries to argue that it's possible for political philosophy to be neutral between different people's conceptions of what is good, that as a society we don't have to choose a conception of what is good. We should start rather with an idea of what is right, and what that turns out to be for Rawls is what is just. Um, my view is that this is a fundamental uh, confusion uh, and one not remotely justified. Just, just before you go on to your view, let yeah. me try and summarise that for for mm-hmm. for, for, sure. re- for readers. Um, I'm I'm obviously new to this medium. For listeners who, you know, might not have come across this guy before, so I'm going to try and put this in the most common sense way possible. Stop me if I'm getting it wrong. But basically, the good for rules is like your, your, your common sense life plan, your, your normal desires and ambitions, your common sense morality vis- vis-a-vis how you treat other people, your personal ethics, your religion if you have one. That, he insists, needs to be completely separate from, and in some sense inferior to, a set of legal and political axioms, which we call the right or the theory of justice. So the bottom line is, for rules, there really has to be as hard line a separation as possible between societal political values on the one hand, and then all the other values we might have on the other. Would you, would you say that as a sort of fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's roughly right. And the key point about that, uh, in my opinion, is that what it turns out uh, the right will amount to for rules is a kind of assertion of various forms of, uh, of individual uh, liberty, political uh, liberty, uh, economic uh, liberty of a certain uh, kind, liberty to choose your job and so on and so forth. And society isn't allowed to have a conception of the good which trumps uh, those ideas uh, of the the right. And that, I think, is one of the things which is fundamentally problematic about rules uh, in this moment in history, that that everything in that rules conception, therefore, actually ends up um, militating against some of the kinds of uh, difficult communal decisions that we need need to make if we're going to uh, survive and flourish. For example, perhaps it's going to be the case uh, in years to come, and perhaps not very long now at, at all, uh, that it would be absurd to um, allow people um, supposedly free choice of career, which in formal terms, uh, Rawlsianism uh, opens up uh, to them because a lot of those uh, careers are incredibly destructive of ecology and actually also of uh, of society. So this is one way to, to get away into understanding uh, how Rawls um, actually um, gets us supposedly to the position whereby on neutral grounds, supposedly, uh, we we prove uh, the necessity of uh, of um, a political uh, liberalism. Uh, I think this neutrality is a is a pose, uh, and that the reality is that every uh, society um, has um, uh, a conception um, of the good, um, which is um, running it. The only question is whether you're um, aware of that uh, or not. Uh, so, I think our society has a conception of the good running it, for example, which exactly as rules would want. 
places um, personal choice and individual freedom at the centre of it. And I think this is proving absolutely catastrophic. So, yeah, this was this was like um, my central thing with, you know, we could argue and you have right about how desirable is it that we sort of foundationally cut off political values from all other values. But actually, before you even get there, I just like within 30 seconds of thinking about it, it should become obvious that this isn't possible, even if it were desirable. Like this isn't how values work. This isn't how the language with which we express values work. So one of the ways Wittgenstein, it might not seem political, but I think is, is the theory of language stuff. Um, So I'm not going to try and do a full account of it. But you have, for instance, um, an idea like family resemblances, which is, uh, I may butcher this a little, but the idea that word meaning is like a set of family resemblances. There's a set of recurring themes, there's a set of recurring ideas in a particular word, but a lot of words, and particularly normative words, lack a really strict definition that adheres to, to, um, to every usage. So just for instance, when we talk about freedom or any political concept like that, you could mean in you know individual negative freedom. You could mean freedom as autonomous expression. You could mean social democratic freedom. You could mean some sort of stoic or mystical freedom. And there's not obviously a single definition that, that binds all of them. And where that comes in in a political sense, I think, is the idea that you could have political values that are completely untethered from our day-to-day morality values, because the way we use a value in one circumstance is essentially to appeal to other values. If you say something isn't fair or isn't right, and you're asked why, you'll immediately just start making links to other values. If something's not fair, you'll say, well, it's because people you'll appear people weren't treated equally. People um, didn't take responsibility, whatever it is. So if you're going to have a set of political values that are completely distinct, you would have to be using, you would either have to have completely new values, which Rawls isn't doing, to the everyday ones that we use, or you'd have to use words like justice and fairness in a way that their meaning is completely distinct from how we use them in everyday language, but that isn't how language works, right? Did you did I make sense through all of that? I think you put that very well. Uh, and what you've put your finger on there, as you say, is one of the ways in which, in this slightly peculiar way, uh, as typical of, uh, of liberals, Rawls tries to uh, remove... Um, uh, Rawls tries to put a kind of hard line between um, ethics and politics and make politics in this in this <coughs> sense autonomous. As <coughs> excuse me, as I said earlier, I don't think he makes it um, autonomous in the right way. Uh, in the sense that what he doesn't do uh, is pay proper attention to considerations of of political power um, in a way that uh, that enables us to think politics beyond um, ethics. But he tries in this kind of bizarre theoretical way. Uh, to to do uh, what we've just described, and I think that does tend to run afoul of Wittgenstein's uh, thinking on language. I'd like to add to what we've just said uh, a couple of further um, key ways in which I think uh, Wittgenstein offers a kind of a different approach from uh, Rawls. 
uh, and they're to do with uh, again with this with this fundamental idea of of language uh, in Wittgenstein. So uh, Wittgenstein is well known for objecting to the very idea of a private uh, language, a language that could be private to one person. But this seems to me to be the basis for a potent critique of individualism, and also I would suggest a potent critique of the fantasy of uh, of social contract, the fantasy that you could have first had individuals and then they agreed to unite together. It seems to me that actually uh, uh, what happened and the way we must conceive it is that we all we were always already uh, in community, just as uh, as uh, primates are um, non-human primates uh, today. So it seems to me that Wittgenstein's considerations against the very idea of a private language do uh, threaten the basis for liberal political philosophical thinking. And furthermore, related to that, it seems to me that one of the fundamental ways to understand what Wittgenstein is trying to bring to the table about language could be put in the following way, that language is a commons. Language is something which it only makes sense to think of as being um, uh, fundamentally um, present to and constitutive of uh, persons as always already members uh, of a uh, community. Uh, And commonses, uh, again, can't be intelligibly understood uh, as the the property of uh, true commonses can't be intelligibly understood as, as it were, the property of uh, of individuals. It seems to me that um, it's impossible to understand rules without understanding the centrality to his ideas of the concept of justice. So right. his most famous book is called The Theory of Justice, and it begins by asserting that uh, justice is the first virtue uh, of, uh, of political institutions. Um, uh, and justice he caches as, uh, famously, as fairness. Right. Um, now, um, the, the fundamental issue there, it seems to me, uh, with that, it seems to me, is that I just think it's wrong. Um, it seems to right. me that, that to place justice so uh, centrally uh, may have made uh, sense uh, in the past at some point, but is a, an increasingly absurd uh, basis on which uh, we can think um, uh, our polities. And my argument is that uh, unless you have um, a society which has some kind of promise of being able to have continuity uh, over time uh, into the future, then you don't really have a society at all. You aren't taking uh, future generations uh, seriously at all. You aren't taking our nature uh, uh, as mammals, as carers, etc., uh, seriously. So my argument is that the first virtue of uh, political institutions uh, now um, is uh, survival, um, i.e. human survival, uh, and that the, the second virtue um, is something like um, Aristotelian uh, flourishing, hmm. um, some kind of uh, uh, genuine ways in which we can um, explicitly, not with some kind of fantasy of neutrality, um, promote um, uh, conceptions of the of the good, which are um, uh, uh, broadly uh, agreed, if possible, um, and that justice, while obviously of some importance, comes uh, somewhere after those two um, on the list. So it seems to me once again that in this respect, it's reasonable to make the argument. That uh, that Rawlsian thinking and more generally liberal political philosophy is simply past its uh, sell-by date. As a possible counter response to that, I mean, I think it is the case though that Rawls is pr- particularly egregious in this respect, right? In that he just sort of asserts justice is the first value of society, but then never really cashes out why he's 
why that's the number one go-to. And it's not, I mean, I guess the difference, let's, if you compare him to, say, prior liberal thinkers, is it's even more restrictive. If you had someone like John Stuart Mill, they would do the same thing and say, utility, right? But what he means by that is he's sort of just using it as a catch-all for all things that I think are innately desirable. Or if you take later liberal thinkers, uh, Hobhouse or someone like that, they would say, liberty, uh, by which, and they'd be self-conscious about it, they'd say, I am just using this as a shorthand for all things that are innately desirable. So Rawls is making the same move there. He's sort of using like a meta-concept, right? The difference is he restricts his meta-concept solely to the political. This is only about how institutions work. It's not about human needs and human comfort and human solidarity. And in those older liberal thinkers, there is a sense of human development, of sort of autonomous flourishing on, um, Mill said, the permanent interests of mankind as a progressive being. And when you include a broader conception of liberty or utility or whatever we're saying that includes that, that human stuff, then you can kind of project it forward and have a, you know, I think Mill put it really well, the permanent needs of man as a progressive being. But Rawls, even for a liberal theory, has really just closed that door on himself, right? Like, like if, if it's going to be just, if you're making it that restrictive, it's necessarily going to be static, right? Yes, I think that's broadly right. Uh, if I were forced to be a liberal, uh, a million liberal, then uh, a Rawlsian liberal, I think the supposed uh, progress in liberalism from the days of the classical liberalism, uh, somebody like Mill, to the days of, uh, of Rawls are actually uh, a kind of uh, regress. However, I'd much rather not be forced to be a liberal at all, because it still seems to me that there are significant problems uh, in uh, a million type approach. One is the, is the priority that remains, obviously, for him to uh, liberty. Another is the concept that you just uh, helpfully mentioned of uh, progress, which is a very, very widespread uh, idea among liberals, and again, seems to be uh, an idea which is actually pretty disastrous for us at this point in, in history, where we're on the cusp of, uh, of uh, well, essentially destroying the future in the name of uh, continued uh, progress. And we're fantasizing to ourselves that our children are going to have better conditions of life than we are, when actually, tragically, the likelihood is they're going to have worse conditions of life uh, uh, than we are. But I think more fundamentally, the very idea of uh, of progress, of some kind of uh, linear development built into history, uh, is itself uh, problematic and is itself uh, tends to be very closely allied to liberal political philosophy. So, I mean, OK, let me put my thoughts together on this one. So, yes, liberalism is generally understood. But if we took something like a, a sort of broad based utilitarianism or consequentialism that, that, that Mill has, right? Like, not the Benthamite narrow pleasure minus pain, but basically all things that are desirable for people are desirable. And then, this is much maligned in rules. Both rules and Nozak start by just yes. ruling utilitarianism right out the gate. We're not doing that. Yes. Um, but th- it seems to me this is actually a not totally unhelpful way of looking at questions of our survival as a planet, our, you know, like you said, survival. Because if you start with the assumption that suffering is bad, welfare, flourishing, the good life is good, but then all human lives matter, inc- or maybe a, a, an, a animal as well, 
Definitely. including including future ones, then suddenly the vast ethical impetus is on is on the future lives because they so vastly outnumber the present ones. And what's best for them is a matter of huge uncertainty. You could debate it forever. But what immediately becomes clear is the absolute central ethical importance of existential risk, be it like a climate catastrophe, a nuclear exchange, Anything that would stop, or even runs a small chance of stop, and it's more than a small chance now, but anything that would stop those future lives existing automatically, by this sort of calculus, goes to the number one priority. So I don't know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, yes, well, uh, I'm sympathetic with uh, where you were headed uh, there. This is uh, one reason why a lot of my work in the last few years has concerned uh, the precautionary principle. Uh, and alongside uh, Nassim Taleb and others, I've been trying to argue for uh, a sort of revived version of the precautionary principle, which um, places uh, issues of uh, existential risk and of ecocidal uh, damage um, front and center. Uh, and I do think that uh, liberal political philosophy finds it very difficult to take uh, a view which e emphasizes the precautionary principle strongly, uh, very seriously, because of its uh, presentism, uh, basically. In other words, liberal political philosophy finds it more or less constitutively impossible to take the future fundamentally seriously. It tries to do so by, by talking about um, climate justice or future justice and so on and so forth. But once again, the very frame of justice is unduly restrictive, where we need uh, a frame of, well, precaution, and I would argue a frame of, uh, of care. Um, and if you're trying to pursue some kind of contractarian or contractualist uh, methodology, um, then that founders on being able to include the future um, adequately for reasons that are familiar to uh, uh, many philosophers. Uh, one of those reasons is that uh, who, the, who the future people are uh, will depend upon uh, what we do now. Um, so they can't really be included as equal participants uh, in any um, uh, imagined, let alone actual um, contract, uh, which is why I think we should not be bound by this uh, contractualist thinking. And we should actually just say that, well, whoever uh, they turn out to be, uh, we have absolute responsibilities towards them uh, of care and, in fact, I, I've argued, of, uh, of love. Um, and that those uh, go beyond uh, the kind of uh, coldly uh, rational uh, considerations of, uh, of uh, fairness by means of which liberals try and, I think, fail to take seriously uh, the future and the absolute need to protect it. So let's, we've been circling around the idea of contract theory for a while. Let's, let's dig in here for a minute. So, okay, I, I, I've been going to Mill. He's my go-to guy for, for liberal philosophers. Mill said in On Liberty, society is not founded on a contract and no good purpose is answered by inventing one in order to deduce obligations from it. Need we say more? Well, once again, uh, I remark that uh, I, I'm, I prefer Mill to, uh, to Rawls, uh, but uh, uh, I, Mill is still not my, uh, my main man. I think we can do better still. But yes, on this particular point, I think uh, Mill is basically right. I think it's also useful here to point to Burke. Um, Burke is uh, disliked by uh, many um, uh, self-described leftists or progressives 
uh, on the reasonable grounds that uh, uh, he was in some regards a, a problematic uh, apologist for a very unequal etc society but there were things I think that Burke got right and this was one of them. Burke basically lampooned the idea of a, of a social contract and said that if society is a, a contract, it's a contract between the uh, dead and the living and the yet to be born. Uh, and what Burke meant by that was something, I think, quite similar to what I said a minute ago. Namely, it's completely absurd to think of that as being anything remotely, literally uh, like a contract. Rather, the way we ought to think about society is always already extended radically um, across time. And we ought to really kind of uh, include absolutely fundamentally um, in our precepts for how society uh, ought to be uh, uh, thought of and run uh, that kind of care uh, for our uh, descendants. Uh, because, of course, uh, once you start to think in this kind of long termist way, um, our descendants um, actually matter more than our ancestors because it's much more difficult for us to hurt our ancestors than it is for us to hurt uh, our descendants. I'm not saying it's impossible for us to hurt our ancestors. I think we are doing that. But I think that um, the, uh, the onus is far more kind of radically on us to seek to take care of the future. So, yes, I think that there are a number of uh, major thinkers from whom we can conclude that there are severe uh, limitations to any kind of contract type methodology if we, what we if what we want to do is take seriously our nature as temporal beings and the nature of community as that which uh, which endlessly survives while individuals uh, come and go individuals just aren't that important uh, and liberalism tragically errs and tragically um, um, amplifies the, uh, the the status quo by uh, making individuals uh, and, and, frankly, egos seem as though they are at the centre of everything. So then, if, yeah, and, like, I've always sort of been puzzled by, like, how central contract theory is, because if you start it, the, the, the origin, I mean, like, it goes back before Hobbes, but Hobbes is a good starting point. Those sorts of figures are writing in the age of state formation, right, when the nation-state really got going and became a thing. And it sort of does make sense that in that sort of historical perspective, you would really want to shore up the ideology behind the, or, or there would be an instinct to shore up the ideology behind the state as concretely as possible. But it's something that's absolutely persisted. And people find rules, like I remember when I did my MA and like our first few classes were on rules, people find rules really compelling and impressive people find rules really impressive. And to my mind, the contract theory thing is at best a metaphor. It's a metaphorical way of understanding what our obligations to each other are. And it, like, like all metaphors, it can be used well or it can be used badly. And I think in the case of rules, it's it's being used badly, it's unduly abstract, it's restrictive, it's time static. But even at its best, this isn't like an absolute core ontological truth about the world that we're getting at. It's 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 a device, but it's one it's one that really seems to have a hold over people's imagination. And if I were to yeah. if I were to try for like why, I would say is that I, I think when you're dealing with ethical and moral concepts, there's a huge amount of built-in uncertainty. We just don't know that much about the world, and the language we use is really imprecise in a Wittgensteinian way. And the idea of a contract, it feels like something solid and real and tangible, even if it isn't, and people sort of cling to that certainty. 
And I think that's why these, this, this is so salient, even though it's actually quite a sloppy way of thinking. I don't know how far along you'd follow me with that, though. Yeah, I think what you said is broadly right as far as it goes, but I would actually go further. I would say the really, <coughs> excuse me, the really crucial thing here um, is, uh, and perhaps you were implying this, is that it's wrong to think that this metaphor, because that's what it is, um, is more than just one possible metaphor from a host of metaphors. No, no, that's that's exactly are, that's exactly yeah, what I'm saying. And there it's, are it's, metaphors uh, which, yeah. which I would argue, especially at this time of history, should have a far more great uh, power on us. So one of those metaphors um, uh, is that we ought to think of uh, of society. Uh, as um, in the kind of way uh, that we think when we think uh, as parents. Um, I don't mean by that that we should literally think of society as a family. But what I mean is that I think we should think um, of the way in which uh, parents fundamentally place uh, uh, care for their offspring front and centre uh, in, uh, in what they decide to do. Um, and I'm influenced here by, uh, by some threads in, uh, in feminism. Uh, feminist uh, care ethics, mm -hmm. um, and that um, that that kind of spirit uh, is actually more important for a time uh, like ours, and for restructuring our politics, if we were ever, ever able to do so, uh, than this uh, this somewhat tired uh, contract metaphor. Also, I think it's really important to bring out, and this goes back somewhat to what we were saying earlier when I tried to suggest some Wittgensteinian reasons for being suspicious of uh, social contract type thinking, that uh, insofar as we think of uh, families, and in fact always more than just families, um, uh, bands, uh, uh, troops, um, tribes as being... Um, uh, the original um, political communities right back into our uh, animal past and right into the kind of um, societies and cultures you can see today in uh, in chimpanzees or in orcas. Um, insofar as we, uh, we think that way, we have to understand that there are fundamental um, elements of uh, trust uh, that pervade um, uh, such societies and make any kind of cooperative uh, action uh, community, any kind of communication uh, possible, which are, I would suggest, not possible to understand on a social contract understanding. In other words, there's an incoherence in the idea of social contract, because if you don't already trust other people and are involved with them in some way, how do you actually get to the point of being able to uh, take seriously any contract uh, which, uh, which they supposedly uh, make alongside you. So I think that the social contract idea of society never actually manages to generate an idea of society. All it can generate is an idea of a load of individuals smushed together. So it's interesting, listening to you talk, and this might be a slight tangent, but talking of metaphors, talking of, you know, Wittgensteinian word games and, and language games and so on, what's interesting is the meta, you're talking in an underlying scientific metaphor of evolution and nature and natu the, the natural world, um, whereas the, the, the Rawlsian, most modern liberal, most libertarian, most whatever, use a Newtonian metaphor. They, the economics does this as well. They, 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 they um, visualize the world as discrete autonomous parts moving in stable orbits, yeah. responding to predictable inputs and outputs. Um, and it feels, I think it feels more scientific, even though both are just metaphors. Um, 
but it's not, and if anything, it's less appropriate, given that when we're talking about human well-being and flourishing, we are talking about living systems. So surely it makes sense to use metaphors that pertain to that. Yes, uh, just one slight correction to what you just said. Yes. Of course, our natural history uh, is not a, a metaphor. I mean, it is actually the case right. that uh, that for um, uh, millions of years we have been fundamentally uh, communal um, creatures in ways that I think uh, liberalism finds hard to understand. But apart from that point, I, I very much agree with uh, what you were trying, I think, to say just then. And I'd like to, to bring to this... Um, uh, a quotation from uh, from Rawls, uh, which exemplifies, I think, this kind of uh, problematically kind of quasi-Newtonian uh, thinking, exemplifies the the desperately dangerous individualism that I find uh, in Rawls. So this is uh, from um, his uh, classic book, A Theory of Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just read out this uh, this sentence. Obviously, no one can obtain everything he wants. The mere existence of other persons prevents this. And I think if you think about that sentence, you'll see just what's wrong with the kind of fundamental starting point of rules. He fundamentally is thinking there of other people as obstacles to oneself, um, rather than thinking of other people as enabling or indeed of other people as co-constituting uh, uh, oneself. Um, and that, for me, kind of reeks of the kind of uh, dangerous and obsolete uh, worldview uh, that uh, liberals inhabit. So I was reminded of you talking of a quote, I don't have it in front of me, so I might slightly butcher it, but from Marx, where Marx takes the equal and opposite extreme and says, quote, there is no such thing as an individual. The individual is merely a portal through which we witness social interactions. So I think us in the West, in, in you know, Britain, America, whatever, we think of that atomized view of ourselves um, as, as people who are sort of war us against the world, as it were, as the yeah. sort of quote-unquote normal and natural way of thinking. But for most people, for most of history, certainly prior to contact with the West, it wasn't the modern individual, the modern sort of homo economicus, as it were, is a creation of ideology and a creation of the state. And I think people yeah. people don't see that, right? I think that's right. And uh, part of my worry is that while um, liberal political philosophy often poses as a, an opponent of that kind of economistic ideology, in fact, it, it's, uh, by my lights, just uh, another uh, version of it. Um, and uh, as you're implying, uh, it seems to me that now is a time when we have to take very, very seriously the limits of that individualism. By the way, it's not even a real individualism. It's a kind of faux individualism in the sense that actually um, our society, which I think rules, provides a kind of uh, uh, de facto apologia uh, for, um, is incredibly um, conformistic and uh, resistant to genuinely uh, revolutionary um, uh, thinking. So we don't even succeed in being individualistic. But we have this ideology of individualism which structures uh, many of our uh, uh, laws and patterns of interaction and so on and so forth, uh, and it's pretty disastrous. I think one of the things we really badly need to do at this point in history um, is learn from uh, cultures uh, which have not um, been subsumed into this ideology of individualism. We ought to be learning from indigenous cultures. We ought to be learning to some extent from peasant societies. 
we got to be learning even from uh, other uh, species. I think that there's much to learn, for example, from the extraordinary societies of uh, whales and dolphins uh, and bonobos. If human beings are going to survive and flourish, um, then they will not do so on the base of, basis of liberal political philosophy, but they might do so uh, on the basis of uh, ways of thinking uh, and acting um, together, uh, which really do place uh, uh, the common good uh, much more front and centre. I think that sounds like a good place to end it. There's, a, there's loads more questions I could think to ask you, but that seems like a good closing. Just before we do, um, why don't you tell the listeners where they should follow you? I'll link to the article that we've been discussing, but is there a website, Twitter feed you'd like to make them aware of? Uh, sure. People, if they want to follow me on Twitter, they should go to at Rupert Reed. So R-U-P-E-R-T-R-E-A-D. Um, and then there are many sites you can look at, but one convenient one uh, which collects a lot of stuff together is www.rupertreed.net. Okay, great. This has been fun. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Toby. Uh- Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And I'm actually kind of getting into the Twitter thing. So if you want to follow us there, you'll get not only the episodes, but I share um, podcasts from other philosophy podcasts. I share quotes, articles, stuff like that. So If you don't have enough political philosophy in your life, follow us on Twitter. Facebook's a bit more basic. I just put updates, episodes, and I do the extended bios of our guests on Facebook. And like I say, we're just up on iTunes. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do it is to help us grow our audience. So any shares on social media or forwards are much appreciated. And thank you to people who have done that. So, thanks again for listening. Until next week.